Our sermon passage today continues on in our sermon series, True and Better, the Gospel of John. We'll be picking up at the front of chapter 2 and reading the first 12 verses. So John chapter 2, 1 through 12. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. They stayed there a few days. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this remarkable scene that is recorded for us here in the Gospel of John that we can, uh, we can see in it. Jesus beginning to reveal his glory to the disciples and uh, through our reading to us. So I pray in these moments as we reflect on what's shown here to us, that you would open the eyes of our heart to see the beauty and majesty of Jesus, that our hearts would be captured by that beauty and majesty, and that you would grow us in our faith and dependence upon who he is and what he says. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we just got out of a really tiring election season. I think every election season is tiring. This past year's has been uh, <laughs> particularly bad, right? Um and every election season, it rolls around every couple of years or every four years, whatever it may be. Um, every, every election season shows up and the candidates start to campaign. And so they begin to travel and they're going through different places and they're giving speeches. They're going to VFW halls. They're going to public arenas. They're going to dinner parties. Uh, they're shaking hands and, and kissing babies um, and making campaign promises all along the way about who they are and what they're going to do, why you should vote for them, and what they'll do if they can get into this seat of power, whether it be president or uh, local commissioner or whatever the position may be. They're making campaign promises about who they are and what they're going to do. Now, campaign managers spend a lot of time and money convincing us that their candidates have the authority to make these promises, and so they want to seem uh, to be uh, authoritative and strong with their pronouncements. They, 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 they spend a lot of time and mon- money telling us that they're going to have the power to carry out these promises. And they show us pictures of them with their family or, or doing uh, uh, wholesome things, uh, so to speak, to show us that they have the character, that we can trust these people, that they're really our friends. And a lot of money, again, is spent on these campaigns. Signs are made and they pop up in yards, bumper stickers, etc. And it all tends to work. It all tends to work. For most of us, we buy in in some way, maybe not fully in some of these promises. 
we begin to defend these candidates to our friends. Um, the election happens if our candidate wins, we're overjoyed, and we kind of wait to see. Are they going to follow through on all these campaign promises? And sadly, more often than not, and maybe I'm a little bit jaded, they don't. They don't follow through on campaign promises. And I think it's for one of three re reasons. The first one is this. They don't have the authority to make the promises uh, that they've made, the authority or, or the right to say what they've said. Or they don't have the power, the ability to carry it out. Uh, maybe they have the intentions, but they don't have the power to come through. Or they don't have the character. They, they, can't, they won't follow through because they didn't intend to. So they either don't have the authority, the power, or the character to follow through on all their campaign promises. Now, I think I've said this in every sermon we've done so far in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is kind of like a courtroom drama. What's going on is Jesus is on trial. Uh, the, the life and ministry of Jesus is on trial. Who he is and what he's done. And what we've had in the first chapter, of we've, we've been introduced to Jesus, and a lot of claims have been made about him, that he's God, that he created all things, that he's equal with God the Father. We've been told that he's the light of the world that's coming into this world of darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome him. We've been told that he's arriving to give us the right to be children of God, and that he's the Lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. Again, these are huge, huge claims. And what happens in chapter 2 to keep it in the terms of a courtroom drama, is the gospel writer, as an attorney, moves on from this opening statement where he makes all these claims, and he begins to describe a number of different scenes from the life and ministry of Jesus. So a number of different interlocking scenes that demonstrate how Jesus comes through on all these uh, claims, these, or we can use uh, in the idea of an election season, how Jesus comes through on all these campaign promises that we've seen in the first chapter. And uh, looking at our passage this morning, which is the first of these scenes that, f that lay out in the rest of uh, the, the Gospel of John, I want to kind of uh, focus in here on the next three weeks and focus in on uh, giving us a blueprint to understand the rest of the Gospel. And so we're going to look uh, at, at the authority, at the power, and the character of Jesus. How this scene shows us that Jesus is authoritative, that Jesus is powerful, and that Jesus has the character that makes that authority and that power good news for us. So this week, we're going to focus on the authority of Jesus. Next week, we'll focus on the power of Jesus, and the week after that, the character. And uh, I think we'll see in these three things that Jesus does come through powerfully on his campaign promises. And for that reason, we must come to him by faith to receive the grace that he is authoritative, powerful, and good enough to give to us. So let's look back in at this passage and see this week how it reveals the authority of Jesus. The scene opens up on an incredibly joyous occasion, a wedding festival. So a wedding's happened, and in the middle of the celebration, which at the time would have lasted about a week, in the middle of the celebration, a problem has popped up. The hosts who have brought all these guests in to celebrate this new marriage, have ran out of wine long before the end of the celebration. Now in verse 3, Jesus' mother, Mary, comes to him and points out the issue to him. Now we don't know uh, why 
And we don't know why Mary knows before everybody else that the wine has run out. Maybe she's the caterer or she's the wedding planner, (laughs) to use modern terms. But whatever it is, she has figured this out before anybody else has. And she quietly comes to Jesus to to bring it to his attention. And in verse 4, Jesus responds to her in what should probably feel like a confusing way to us. Let's read it again. He says, Woman, why do you involve me? Or uh, to put it in another phrase, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Um, Now, if that sounds odd to you, you're not alone. A lot of ink has been spilled (laughs) with writers writing about this interchange between Jesus and his mother. Is he being disrespectful? Um, Well, I think first there's a little bit that's lost in translation here. In the time of Jesus, calling a woman woman in conversation wasn't a sign of disrespect. It it is now, I think, in our culture, uh, at least here in North Carolina. But in fact, in Jesus' time, it was his normal, polite way of referring to women that he met in his life and ministry. We can see it in the rest of the gospel. It's roughly the equivalent of our ma'am. You saying ma'am? What does this have to do with me? But there's still an issue, because while it's not a sign of disrespect, it's not the way a person would refer to their own mother. So the question for us, Jesus isn't being rude here, but the question for us is, why would Jesus refer to his mother? Why would he refer to Mary in the same way as as the other women in his life? And why wouldn't he use the term of endearment that he surely would have used growing up in her home? Why didn't he call her mama or or mom or or whichever? And why would he follow that up with essentially telling her to mind her own business? Well, in short, it's because Jesus was establishing here, very early on in his uh, ministry, his authority as the Son of God. Not just the Son of Mary, the Son of God. Remember, this is the very beginning of his ministry, and he's grown up in Mary's household. At this point, Jesus is 30 years old, um, give or take a year. Um, So he's an adult man, but he's grown up in Mary's household under her authority, under her say-so. And at this point, uh, Joseph, the husband of Mary, seems to be dead. That's why he's not popping up in the scene. He, he seems to have already died, which means Jesus, as the oldest son, would have been the, uh, the, the primary breadwinner in the house. Uh, he would have been um, the, the one that was working for the family. And so what's going on here at this wedding in Cana is this is kind of Jesus' debut into public ministry. He is going to be going from uh, his private household of his mother, where he's been a carpenter, and transfer now into this public ministry as the Messiah, as the Son of God. So we're seeing in this scene a transition of Jesus from uh, this humble carpenter into him stepping into his calling as the Son of God, the Messiah of God's people. And what he's doing here, and why I think this is recorded for us, why we have this conversation written down for us in the Gospel of John, is that Jesus right here is making it clear now Um, Not that he's being rude to his mother, but he's making it clear that he's under compulsion from nobody on earth, not even his mother. Um, Now, there may have been some years later that claimed that Jesus really didn't think he was a Messiah, but he was maybe propped up by his family or propped up by his disciples who, who wanted to use him for their own purposes, that he was a figurehead that they kind of tricked into being a leader. Maybe some that uh, said that his family used him to uh, build a brand or a platform. 
but that his heart wasn't really into it. But what we have here is Jesus taking the initiative to draw a line between the authority of his mother and his own. From here on out, he will be acting by his own authority, given to him by God the Father. He will act by the directives of God the Father only, not by the directives of his mom, and even she must be aware of this. In our passage, she's brought the issue of the lack of wine here at the party to his attention, and she wanted him, um, and I don't think she had malicious intent, she wanted him to act at her direction. And Jesus quickly clarified here that he's not submitted to her authority any longer. He was no longer a child at her home in Nazareth. He was now acting as the Messiah. He was stepping in to his ministry that he had been sent by God to accomplish. Now, I think we have to have some compassion for Mary here. This is a scene where she loses her son as just her son where she has to let him go into this, uh, this incredible and unique calling on his life as the Son of God. She loses her son as the son she's had in her household that she's loved and nurtured and cared for. This is him leaving home, never, never to return. And in fact, this is him leaving home and beginning to take a road that eventually leads to his crucifixion. But I think we have to remember, too, even in the midst of our compassion for Mary and how heart-riching this must have been, um, that it also leads to his resurrection from the dead. Not just to his crucifixion, not just to that sign of defeat, but to his victory over death in his resurrection. That Jesus is no longer under her authority as his mother is actually great news for her as well because now Jesus is not just her son that she loves— he becomes her Savior and her Messiah. Him beginning to act under his own authority here ultimately means her salvation and ours as well. And so in this sense, we can have great compassion on the pain that maybe Mary felt watching her son step into this, uh, this unique calling. But we can also have a great amount of respect for her, realizing that her sacrifice here is uh, it meant grace spilling out, not just to her. It wasn't just a sacrifice she did to gain something later, but grace spilling out to us as well. And so Jesus, Jesus demonstrates his authority here, his right to do what he does and say what he says. So in verse 5, Mary responds to this, uh, Jesus drawing a line in his sand and saying he's going to work under his own authority. In verse 5, Mary responds by turning to the servants, to the waitstaff, to the people serving at the wedding, telling them to, quote, do whatever he tells you. Now, however odd his response to her, woman, why do you involve me, uh, no matter how odd that response may seem to us in verse 4, it seems that Mary understood. She understood what was happening, and she had full confidence now in his authority. And the servants here follow up by listening to what Jesus says. So they understood and acted on his authority. And in this miracle, this is amazing, even the water, <laughs> even the physical uh, material water acts under his authority as he turns it into new wine. Again, his authority is beginning to be shown here. It's on display. Now up until this point, in the Gospel of John, as we've read through in the first chapter, almost everything that the disciples knew about Jesus 
were either things said about him by other people or something that he had said. Uh, it, it was, again, campaign promises in our modern terms. And they were still unsure because anybody can talk, right? Anybody can say words. They can, anybody can make claims. They were unsure. Does he have the authority? Do he have, does he have the right to say these things? But his demonstration of his authority here in this miracle was proof to them that he not only had the words, but he had the right to say those words. He had the authority. Now, around the year 1830, there was this uh, preacher from the state of Massachusetts named William Miller. Um, in, in 1830, he began teaching that he had analyzed the Bible, that he had studied it from front to back, and he had discovered by his special math, <laughs> that Jesus was going to come back in 1844. And so, uh, all of a sudden, he was propping himself up as this authority, this spiritual authority on, on the Bible. And his articles began to be printed in journals and newspapers, and he quickly became a very sought-after writer and speaker. He developed elaborate charts, and filling, he filled in timelines, uh, and he filled those charts with scriptural quotes. So uh, for somebody just kind of glancing at it, it looked like he knew what he was talking about. And his teachings were incredibly attractive too because after all, what Christian doesn't want Jesus to return and make all things new? Um, what Christian does not long for the new heavens and new earth? So William Miller shows up on the scene. He, he, he says he's a spiritual authority. He's making promises. He's making claims. Jesus is coming back in 1844. Now, people be came to believe his teachings, and they began preaching and writing himself, and the movement that he started took on steam very quickly. Tens of thousands of people came to believe in what he was teaching. And then 1844 came. All these promises that he had made all along the way, 1844 came and went, and Jesus did not return. And many people were disappointed, and they either abandoned the Christian faith altogether, or they joined other groups that, that said, no, it's 1845 or 1846. Some even tried to reinterpret his teachings, but all of them were ultimately disappointed. So what happened? What happened here? Well, Miller's, his, William Miller's teachings were attractive. His elaborate uh, charts and his quoting of Scripture made it look like he knew what he was talking about, but ultimately his doctrines were simply a clever conjecture. He spoke as if he knew what he was talking about, but in reality, he did not have the authority to do so. He did not have the right to be making these claims, even if they sounded good, even if it sounded at first like he knew what he was talking about. All of his followers were destined for disappointment and frustration because the man they had decided to follow did not have the authority, he did not have the right to say what he said. Now, thankfully for us, Jesus Christ is no William Miller. As we've started to see here in this passage, Jesus has the authority to speak. He has the authority, the right to act. And as his uh, disciples learn here as they leave this wedding. He's able to cash the checks that he writes, in a sense. He can follow through because he has the right, he has the authority to say what he says. Does he have the authority to follow through on his promises? It's a resounding yes. 
Now, we'll, be, we'll dig a little bit deeper into this passage in the next couple of weeks. We'll look at the power of Jesus and the character of Jesus. His authority, his right to say what he says, is joined to his power and his character to not only demonstrate that he is the Son of God, which does show us that, but his authority, his power, and his character are joined together to show us that this is incredible good news for us. In this passage, we see that it's good news for this married couple in this way. Jesus isn't just saving this married couple from shame and embarrassment and running out of wine. He's doing that. You know, they're saved from, uh, from, from being embarrassed. Um, but there's something bigger going on here. At this time, I mentioned earlier, a wedding celebration will last about a week. And to run out of wine well before the end of the celebration was not only an instance of incredible shame for a family, but in some cases, as odd as this may sound to us, guests at the wedding could even bring a lawsuit against the family um, for failing to provide. And the families that were hosting the wedding would have to pay a retribution to the guests for running out of wine before the celebration was over. Now, that could have crippled this family because here's the, here's the thing that we're shown here. They had to be a family of great poverty because otherwise they would have had the money to run out and buy new wine. But they did not have the resources to do that. And had they had these lawsuits brought against them, it would have buried them. It would have buried them in debt. And so Jesus here, he uses his authority so evident on display he uses his authority for their good. He saves them from social shame. He saves them from possible legal troubles and being buried under a mountain of debt. And because of the abundance of the good wine that he provides, he actually gives them a pretty great wedding gift. Now, as it says in here, these stone jars were 20 to 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus, uh, essentially, in this wedding this miracle, he gives them a wedding present of 120 and a hunt to 180 gallons of the finest wine that they could keep, that they could sell, that they could trade. It wasn't all drunk there at the wedding. He gave this them this incredible resource um, that that you know rather than them being socially shamed and buried under a mountain of debt, they now had a resource at their disposal um, for their good as a family, as a young couple. So his authority here is not only uh, put on display to establish who he is in the eyes of his disciples to show his glory, his authority is put on display as it always is for the gracious good of others. He doesn't just do this as a, as a trick to show us that he's powerful or authoritative. He, he displays his authority. He displays his power as always for the gracious good of others. Now, how does this apply to us today? How do we, in 2021, read this, uh, this culturally different moment of this great wedding festival and this uh, seemingly strange miracle? How do we read this today and apply it to our lives? Well, the authority of Jesus is one of our primary confidences in Him. Again, His authority is His right to say what He says. He has the authority to say it. He can say it. So, because of that authority proven here in this miracle, we today can have assurance that He is who He says He is. He's done what He says He, he would do. 
And we are who he says we are. We can have assurance of salvation because God in Jesus uh, has, has shown us his gracious intention. Jesus, who has the authority and the right to say uh, that we are saved by him, has declared us to be saved by him. And so we can see this authority as the ground of our great confidence. He's not merely a person saying words. He's not just a loud voice making promises he can't keep. In fact, he is the word, the Son of God, who has the authority to make promises that we can trust. And so when the question for us today may pop up, how can I know that my sins are forgiven? My sins are big. My sins are numerous, seemingly never-ending. How can I have confidence to know that they are forgiven? What if I've forgotten to confess some of our sins? Are, are there sins hiding that I can't remember that are going to come back out and, and I'll find out, well, that one wasn't forgiven. This one wasn't forgiven. No, we can have the assurance that we are forgiven of our sins by God because Jesus, who has the authority to forgive sins, has said so. He has the authority. He has the right to say so. We can trust in what he says. How can we know that we're loved by God? Not just because we feel it, because there's going to be seasons where we don't feel like we are loved by God, right? The ebbs and flows of life, the realities and the hardness of living in this world may cause us to say, wait, I don't feel loved right now. Does that mean that God does not love me? No, no. We can know and rest assured that we are loved by God even when we don't feel it because Jesus has said so and he has the authority to say so. His authority means that we, in our regular, ordinary lives, can have the greatest confidence that what he has said is certainly true. His authority also gives us great confidence in the spread and the growth of his kingdom in this world. It can give us great confidence that our church here in its earliest days, our small church, will be a kingdom outpost in this world of darkness. Why? Not because we have the best plans, not because we have the most money or the most resources, not because we are the most gifted people. No, we can have great confidence because Jesus has said he's going to build his church And he has the authority to say that. He's going to follow through on what he has said. And in the mysterious work of his Holy Spirit, we can know by his authority that his grace will grow to mature us and to call people into new life in him. So that's how we apply this revelation of God's authority in Jesus, his right to say what he says. When we doubt, We can throw ourselves upon the sureness of his authority. We can always take great confidence that when he says he'll do something, he follows through. And so when he says nothing will separate us from the love of God, he has the authority to say that. And we can know that that's true even if we don't feel it. So our invitation today is no matter what our heart may struggle with, no matter if we're at the heights of joy or the depths of despair, for us to come to Jesus by faith. This is essentially what faith is, trusting in the authority of Jesus, that he has the right to say what he says. We can come by faith and trust and believe and rest in his authority.
We are beloved of God because Jesus says so. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the good news of the authority of Jesus, that in his authority we don't just have a a display of his right, but we have a revelation of this glory for our good. And so I pray, Lord, today, today, that you would apply the, uh, the, the richness of this truth to our hearts, that you would teach us to be people who lean upon the authority of Jesus, who aren't tossed uh, back and forth by the winds of change in this world, but that are stayed and anchored on the sureness of your love for us, revealed in authority by Jesus. I thank you for that authority. I thank you that we can rest upon it. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together.